few years ago, I was talking to one of my pastor friends, and he said, you know, a pastor should just stand up and say, open your Bibles to John chapter 3. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but some people don't want to listen to John chapter three. Some people have had a really difficult week and they're wondering, why is this important? Why do I need to listen and engage and be a part of what the pastor is talking about? That's just the sermon. What about a whole series? I was always taught that there's this idea that you have to have uh, a whole intro to an entire series. And so for uh, a personal evangelism series that we just finished, we talked about 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and this big idea that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Back in the spring, David talked about the introduction to our spiritual gift series and did an incredible job. There's this idea that you want to engage people right away today. No such thing. So what do we do? You know, the other rule Don't talk about how the sausage is made. You don't want to have that behind the scenes glance. So let me tell you what's happening behind the scenes right now. For the first time in my pastoral career, we are getting a bunch of emails with people saying, what happens at Ellerslie? What do you believe? Why do you do what you do? What are the things of the secondary nature? What's the difference between the Baptist General Conference, that's us, and North American Baptists, our friends at Central Baptist or West Meadows? The answer is simple. The NAB is a whole bunch of Germans with German pastors. We're a Swedish church with a German pastor. That's the difference. But then we engage a little bit more. And you say, why on earth does it say a savior is born, Exodus 1 to 4? What is going on there? Does David know that this isn't going to take place for another couple of months until we enter the Advent season? What's happening? So what we're going to do today is a little bit different. If you're wondering, what does Ellerslie do? It's simple. We preach the whole council of scripture. And we have Old Testament, we have New Testament, we have topical. We just finished talking about inescapable mission, but we don't just want to leave it there. We want to bring it into that next series. And so Exodus talks about this big idea of redemption and God rescuing his people. We might open it up to Matthew chapter five through seven in the beautiful Sermon on the Mount. And to go through something verse by verse is enjoyable and we like it and it's important to us. But seeing the whole Sermon on the Mount, seeing what God is doing through that whole passage is beautiful too. If I were to do verse by verse through the book of Exodus, it would be about a hundred sermons. And just because the people of Israel spent 40 years in the desert doesn't mean that we have to, right? So we're gonna go through this in about eight weeks. This is the story of redemption. This is the story of Exodus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this book, the second book of the Bible. Help us to fall in love with what you're doing here and with your people. And God, may we listen well to what it is that you are doing. May, our, may my words fall down so that your words are lifted up and we be inspired by a God who goes and rescues his people. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Exodus chapter one, Exodus chapter one. If you're in the building, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. If you're watching online and wondering, what do I do? You can grab your smartphone and certainly there's an opportunity for you there to download the Bible app and to see what's taking place. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. And we are in Exodus chapter one, picking up in verses five through seven. It says this, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt and Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. 
Throughout the first half of Exodus, we're going to see a number of connections to the book of Genesis. We're going to see that over and over and over again. At the beginning of Genesis, God is creating the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. At the beginning of Exodus, we see the beginning of a brand new nation. The very first command in all of scriptures is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God looks at Adam and Eve and he says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. If you have the Bible in front of you, look at verse 7 and you'll see that line again. The Israelites were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. In Exodus, we see the creation of the nation of Israel. 70 Israelites entered Egypt at the end of Genesis. 400 years later, commentators think that there's about 2 million people who are present. Verses 8 to 22, if you enjoy following along word for word, I always preach from the English Standard Version. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field and all their work. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, the other Pua, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, kill him. If it is a daughter, you can let her live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous. They give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dwelt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you can let every daughter live. Pharaoh is a terrible dude. Up to this point in the scripture, he is the worst person that we have seen. In the opening chapters, we see Cain murder his brother Abel. Not a great look. When we arrive at Sodom and Gomorrah, we see men who are violent and they're rapists. When we get to the end of the book of Genesis, we see Jacob's 12 sons, uh, 11 of his kids, look at Joseph and go, we don't like this guy. Should we kill him or sell him into slavery? But Pharaoh is a next level bad guy. He is the worst by far. The Israelites are a peaceful nation. They're just wanting to hang out and have a good life. And he says to them, let us make them our slaves and let us murder their baby boys. It's the best way to stop a rebellion. Don't even let the rebellion start. And so he figures if I can get the men to work so hard, if I can deal shrewdly with them and make them my slaves and work them so they are bitter to the bone, if I can murder their children, there's no chance of an uprising. Chapter 2, 1 to 10, we shift gears. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him, uh, for him a basket made of bulrushes and dubbed it with bitmen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. 
Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river with her young women walking beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child. Behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. I mentioned just a moment ago that we're going to see in these opening chapters of Exodus regular allusions to the book of Genesis. For those of you familiar with the scriptures, you might be aware of how that first chapter starts. We see God creating the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And at the end of each day, God looked at his, what he had created and he called it good. In Exodus chapter 2, we're introduced to a man of a Levite descent. And we read this in the second verse. The woman conceived and bore a son. And we saw that he was a child. She hid him for three months. Depending on your translation, it's going to say fine or special or beautiful or something of that vein. The Hebrew word here is the exact same as Genesis chapter 1. She looked at her son and saw Tov. He is good. And God is creating the nation of Israel. And God is creating the world. Genesis 1 and 2. With the echo of creation crying out, God is about to do something special. But what is he going to do with that young boy? Verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went to his people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He, took, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. He said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Are you going to do to me and kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. So here is Moses, and he's stuck between two worlds. He is an Israelite. He is a Hebrew. He is a Jew. But at the same time, he doesn't feel like he belongs in that world. Yes, he's adopted into the Pharaoh's court. But when he's there with the Egyptians, he recognizes, I'm an outcast. But the second that he goes and he hangs out with the Hebrews, he says, they say to him, but you're an Egyptian. And so he goes to the land of Midian, a couple nations over, and he spends some time there. He meets a girl, he marries her, he has a son, and he names that kid Sojourner, Wanderer, In Between. In the opening two chapters, we're introduced to a terrible king who makes slaves and kills the children of innocent people. And then we're introduced to a boy who beats the odds. We think, is this the rescuer? Is this the one who's going to redeem Israel? Is this the savior? Verses 23 and 25 are the key that unlock the meaning of the passage this morning. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. My friends, listen to this because it just radiates God's good news. We won't be defined by slavery, but by covenant. The Israelites felt completely abandoned. We have no property. We have no prestige. We have no power. All we have is a promise and a prayer. 
back to Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will make you rich and you will have many children. But a couple chapters later in 15, God says this to Abraham, know for certain your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and treated 400 years. Nothing surprises God. He knows exactly what's going to happen. But where do you go when it turns bad? Where do you go when it doesn't work out the way you were expecting it to work out? Where do you go when your friend dies? You may have heard about the car accident in Millwoods a couple days ago. One of my buddies was in that accident and is no longer on this earth. What do you do when you lose your job and you think, God, I don't know how I'm gonna pay rent or mortgage or put food on the table. What do you do when you're in a committed relationship and your partner decides this is over? What do you do when you have a sickness and you know, and you say, God, I know you're real, but I'm not getting any better. Take another look at verses 24 and 25. There's four verbs that are present. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God saw the affliction of the people. God heard their cry and heard their soul. God knew their sufferings. God remembered their covenant. God is going to come and redeem his people and show them what a rescue looks like. First, he's got to break all the rules. Chapter three, one to 10. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, <clears throat> a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children, out of Egypt. <clears throat> We worship a God who works in amazing ways. We worship a God who works in surprising ways. And today you might be here this morning thinking, I don't know if I believe in God. I've been a Christian my whole life, but I'm not sure I subscribe to all these miracles. I'm just checking church out. Is this actually true? We don't have time to get into a whole apologetic. We're gonna save that series for January. But right now, can you believe in God? Do you believe that God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them and that if you do, then he is a God who can speak through a burning bush. He is a God who can part the Red Sea. He is a God who can send plagues on the people of, uh, of Egypt. He is a God who can provide food daily for the Israelites. He is a God who will speak to Moses and the nation of Israel from a mountaintop. Do you believe that this God can do this? Back to God. 
The simple thing would just be to have a brand new Pharaoh. I mean, there was a Pharaoh who really liked Joseph and brought all the nation of Israel over there. Certainly, he can do that again. If that didn't work, maybe he could grab a high-ranking Egyptian. And this Egyptian might feel bad about what's happening to the Israelites. And he could say to that Egyptian, hey, rise up and say to Pharaoh, we cannot treat the people this way any longer. That's not what he does. He raises up an Israelite. And friend, let's uh, be honest here. We know Moses is going to become a great leader, but at this moment, he is not. He runs away from the palace as soon as things get bad. He's been trained in Pharaoh's court and would yet rather hang out with a bunch of stinky sheep. And an 80-year-old farmer watching the, the livestock is the job of a teenager. Then God looks at Moses and says, that's the man for my job. So Moses has a couple questions. Moses says to God, verse 13, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? 3 verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now in Canada, we have churches everywhere. You can hop on Google and say churches near me and it'll pop up a few churches right here in Heritage Valley, a bunch more in South Edmonton. And even if you live in a small town, you almost certainly have a town there. But there's no churches in ancient Egypt. This story is about 3,500 years old. There's no churches anywhere. This is the nation of Egypt and they worship Egyptian gods. And Moses being raised up in Pharaoh's court knows that they have a whole bunch of different Egyptian gods. And so he says to the one true God, what is your name? What do I tell these people? Are you the God of the sun? Are you the God of the fertility? Are you the God of what? You see, in ancient cultures, to know the name of someone was to know something very essential about that individual. And so God looks at Moses and he says, you tell the Israelites, I am. Am. Tell them I am has sent you. I am not the sun God. I am not the God of fertility. I am not the God of crops. I am the eternal one, the creator, the sustainer of all that exists. I am the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Tell them I am has sent you. This is the God who's going to rescue his people. Now it's time for a little clarity in some direction. Not only does God say to Moses, I want you to go rescue my people from slavery, but he tells him exactly what to say. I find this part fascinating. 3 verse 15, say to the people of Israel. 3 verse 16, say to the elders of Israel. 3 verse 18, say to the king of Egypt. This sounds great. God is saying to Moses, here's the exact words I want you to say. I put a lot of work into these sermons. If God sent me an email on Wednesday saying, say this to the people of Ellerslie, I would go, this is great. Thanks, God. The ancient world is very different from modern society. For Moses to just walk in and ask for an audience with the Pharaoh seems almost unbelievable to us. Could you imagine sending an email to Buckingham Palace and saying, hey, I'm going to be in London next week. Ask uh, Uncle Chucky if he wants to meet with me for some tea and biscuits. He ain't getting anywhere. Because of YouTube, we can't show uh, TV clips and movie clips anymore. And so I actually emailed NBC and I said, I really want to show this clip from Seinfeld in a sermon. No answer. Nothing. But here comes Moses asking for an audience with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And can you imagine what that must have looked like? 
Moses is about 80 years old at this time. He brings his brother Aaron, probably also about 80 years old, and a couple of the kind of overseers of Israel. And they come and they stand before Pharaoh and they say, this is what the God of the Israelites says. Let my people go. What do you think Pharaoh's going to do? He's going to look at them and probably laugh. You? Who is your God? The God of the slaves? The God of the homeless? What God do you have that I should listen to? No, leave my presence. You have no power here. So you can't blame Moses for saying 4 verse 1. God, they will not believe me or listen to my voice for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And so at the beginning of chapter 4, God says, Moses, I'm going to give you three signs. Do you see that staff in your hand? Throw it on the ground. So Moses throws his staff on the ground and it becomes a snake. And Moses is a little bit afraid. And then God says, grab it by the tail and pick it up. And it becomes a staff again. In ancient Egypt, the snake was a sign of wisdom and of life. In Genesis chapter 3, the snake looks like he's full of wisdom and offers life. And God is saying to Moses, one of the great gods of Egypt, I am telling you, I am stronger than. I am stronger than Satan. Do not worry about that. Second sign, Moses, take your hand, put it into your cloak. He pulls it out and it's leprous. And in the the 3,500 years ago, leprosy was a death sentence. Leprosy meant that no one wanted to talk to you. You were um, chased out of the city. You were told to go and live in a leper colony. There was no way of healing it. It was highly contagious. And God says, Moses, take that leprous hand, put it back in your cloak, pull it out, and it's totally healed. And God is saying, I am the God of creation. I am the God of healing. I am the God who can do all things. And if that's not enough, let me give you a third sign. Go to the Nile, take some of the water, pour it on the ground, and it became blood, which would ultimately be the first sign of the plagues that God gives the people. Even after all these miracles, Moses says in verse 10, My Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. And God starts getting a little bit angry now. Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Therefore, go. I will be with you. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Moses eventually complains a little bit more and God finally relents and says, fine, I'm just going to send you your brother Aaron. He can talk for you. This one commentator says, here am I, send somebody else. Moses eventually relents and he says, I'll go to Egypt. God gives him one more thing to say to Pharaoh. This is verses 22 and 23. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he might serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. It's a story of redemption, of God wanting to rescue his people. I have three kids. Um, They're pretty young, eight, six, and four. And so I have the privilege of having a handful of kids' Bibles at my house. And this is one of my favorite kids' Bibles. It's David Helm, big picture storybook. If you want to buy something for your kids or grandkids, he says this. For hundreds of years, the great promises of God seemed to fade away. Israel became great. Israel became less important in the world. Other nations became great, strong nations, powerful nations, who kings ruled over God's people. One of these kings, scared of rebellion, said, I'm going to ruin the lives of the older men and any young children who are born to and under, you will murder them, you will kill them. We are not going to allow them to rise up. It's the story of Moses. It's the story of Jesus. For Pharaoh, 
king of Egypt, Herod, king of Jesus, in Jesus' time, said, I will not stand for this. The best way to squelch rebellion is to what? Don't even let it start. And so Pharaoh says, I'm going to make these men work so hard, they will not have the energy to rebel, and I'm going to destroy all children, male children under the age of two. And what does Herod say? I am scared of rebellion. There's a Messiah that I heard is going to be born. Kill all the children under the age of two. And then what happens next? Moses runs away, and he's in Midian for 40 years, a time of preparation. Jesus runs to Egypt with his mom and with his dad and returns eventually 30 years of obscurity, 40 days of being in the desert. And then something happens. Something powerful happens. When it looks like Moses has failed, when it looks like Jesus has failed, is their most triumphant moment. And Moses says to God, what if I fail? What if I go and I say to Pharaoh, let my people go, what do I do then? And God says to him, oh, you will fail. And it'll be my greatest triumph. And Jesus, standing not before Herod, but before Pilate, recognizes that his greatest failure in the eyes of the world will be his greatest triumph. And Pilate says, out of Jerusalem, out past the gates, go up to the hill of Golgotha where Jesus died and it looked like all was lost. And then he rises from the dead, the triumph of Jesus Christ, the King. But that's not where our sermon today ends. The end of chapter four, we read this. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Moses didn't really trust God. God, I, don't, I can't speak. I, I, I don't have any way to prove it. Who are you? What can I do? What am I capable of? God, they're not going to listen to me. In one verse, check out again verse 31. The people believed when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel and had seen their affliction. One of the commentators I'm using for this Exodus series is Philip Riken, and he has this great quote. The real struggle comes at the point of deciding whether or not we're gonna follow God. I think the proclamation of the gospel is radically important, but it's not everything. And when I stand up on Sunday mornings and I passionately talk to you about a church that has an inescapable mission, that we are going to love our neighbors and we're going to invite people into our homes and we're going to practice hospitality, and we're going to be gifted at conversation, we're going to invite people to our homes, to our small groups, to our church, to events that are happening, I can only do so much. There's great power in small groups and saying, Are, have you done that yet? Have you invited your friend over to your home? Have you invited your neighbor out for coffee? Did you go out for wings with the guys after work? And I think we can stand there and say, God, I don't know if I can do this. And I love this Riken quote. Our real struggle comes at the point of deciding whether or not to follow God. Because Moses ultimately says, God, I'll do it. And the people believe. And so do you, Church of Ellerslie, do you believe that God wants to use you to do incredible things? That he is using you to bring God's good news, his hope and joy to the world? This is a story of redemption. It's the story of God rescuing his people. It's the story of God saying, I want to use you. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Exodus. And of course, when we go through large chunks, we're gonna miss parts, but we're also going to see this beautiful narrative unfold before our very eyes. So God, we pray that you would forgive us when we fall short, where we don't do the things that you are calling us to do. And we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us boldness, you would give us courage to love our neighbors, to love our family, to love our classmates and our coworkers, to do all these things for your glory. And God, we pray that you would continue to rescue people, not just out of physical slavery, but out of slavery from sin and death, and you would bring them to life everlasting because you are great and you are the God who rescues your people. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, amen.